0: All right. well let's get into God's word today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and chapter 22 meeting two characters here in the unfolding story of the books of Samuel, focusing really on King David who is at this point in the story has been anointed as the future king of Israel and yet Saul is still on the throne and we've seen the stories of Saul's jealousy and Saul's self-focus instead of Focusing on God's kingdom and God's glory and his purposes. And really, here in these two chapters, we meet two characters who are really at that point of making a decision. Are you going all in for God and his glory and his kingdom? Or are you casting your lot with the power structure that exists currently? It's a challenge and a struggle that we face as well. Do we go with what our human intellect dictates, with what would seem to be wisest and, and most prudent? Or do we submit ourselves to the God who speaks and reveals himself? And the two characters we're going to meet today are named Ahimelech and Doeg. Maybe some characters of the Bible that are a little bit more obscure, people that, you know, you're like, wait a minute, I've, I can remember who Moses and Noah are, but who is this Ahimelech, Ahimelech and Doeg that we're going to meet in First Samuel chapters 21 and 22? So the first thing we're going to see really is that Ahimelech ends up being that person who is aligned with God's kingdom purposes. He ends up even having to directly confront King Saul and speak truth to him, to this king who is set on his own ways. Whereas Doeg, the herdsman of Saul ends up siding with Saul and betraying the priests of the Lord. And we're going to see how that story unfolds. So today, let's begin here in chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? A few things right here in this first verse. The name Ahimelech, two Hebrew words squished together. The first part has to do with brother. Second part, king. So this, his name literally means a brother of the king or the king's brother. And he's going to demonstrate that sort of relationship to David, God's anointed king, a brotherly way of relating to him, of providing for his needs and helping him on the mission that God has called him to. Later we find out about Ahimelech in chapter 22 that he's the son of Ahitub, which would, be, which would make him the grandson of Eli. If you remember back at the beginning of our study of 1 Samuel, the priest that Hannah came to as she was praying and crying and asking God to uh, remove her barrenness and bless her with a son that she would dedicate to him, Samuel, that priest was Eli. And so this is one of Eli's grandsons who's now working as a priest, as one of the, the Levitical priests in this city of Nob, one of the Levite cities that were designated for the priests of God, 48 cities throughout Israel. And now he's got some fear as David comes to him. Why are you alone? Give me some context. I'm not understanding, David. I've heard that you're a warrior. You know, there's songs that the ladies back in Jerusalem sing about Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Why are you here alone? What's happening? What's going on? And so David gives him a story, a version of a story that's plausible but not true. Here's what David responds. David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Ahimelech, we're on a need-to-know basis. You don't need to know. This is between me and King Saul. And so the, the scene that we have is a priest with a future king alone But we're going to find out there's one bystander present as well who's overhearing this conversation. And so there's an ominous foreshadowing of a part of the story yet to unfold. So that's the version of the story that's plausible but not true. And now we actually hear a little bit more truth as David shares about his mission that not just King Saul but the true king, the maker of heaven and earth, has sent him on. So David says, now then... What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. What's what's being referred to here is the grain offering that's given to the Lord. And that was part of the, the priest's provision. They were to sacrifice to the Lord this bread this holy bread designated to worship God, set, set apart as holy, not just ordinary bread for everyday use, but bread that is to give thanks to God, to give glory to God, to recognize that he is the source and the provider of all good things. He's the one that causes the wheat to grow. And so bringing that first fruits before the Lord obediently, sacrificially to him, and then that food then becomes provision for the priests. Do you think that, the man who they sang about in Jerusalem, the man who had killed Goliath, would not be able to find a loaf of bread in the city of Nob. I think think he probably could could have gotten some bread somewhere. But he goes to the temple to the priest wanting that consecrated bread, that holy bread, knowing that he's on a mission from God, that his mission is no ordinary journey, as he referred to here today but that they're on a mission from God, that God has anointed him, seeking that continued blessing from God, that provision from God, aligning himself with God's kingdom purposes. Now there's some difficult circumstances that are are going to come on this mission that God has sent David toward. There's some difficult people. In fact, we meet them at the beginning of chapter 22. We find who, who are these men that are traveling with David? What are they like? Let me just read you a little description, looking ahead to chapter 22. It says, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. You know, if you're, gonna, if you're going to bring a team together, is that what you're looking for? I need some, some volunteers that are distressed, in debt, and what was the last one? bitter and sold. I, can I get some bitter, distressed, indebted volunteers to help out with the SWAT team, to help out kids ministry, to help out with Bucker? <laughs> Scott's like, we'll take them. Yep. Bring them over there. Captain Scott back here we will put you to work. Well, th- this is the, the difficult people that God has brought together with David to be a part of this mission that God has called him to, this holy task, not an ordinary journey. Not just difficult people, but difficult circumstances. In fact, at the very end of chapter 21, David has to go into hiding. Remember, he's fleeing from the present king of Israel, Saul, who every time he encounters him is is trying to spear him to the wall. And so he flees to the region of Gath to hide out with Achish, the king of Gath. And all of a sudden, he starts hearing that, oh, these people know who I am. These, these people in the region of Gath, are they've heard the songs that the ladies in Jerusalem sing. And so David pretends like he's insane. It says he lets the spittle run down into his beard. And the king of Gath is like, I don't think this is the guy that they're singing the songs about in Jerusalem. This is a madman. He's trying to fly under the radar there. He's in difficult circumstances. Then in the next chapter, he's hiding in a cave. He's having to flee to Judah and hide in the wilderness there in the, in the woods, in the forest. Difficult people, difficult circumstances and yet David perseveres because he knows that he's on a holy mission. This is no ordinary journey. On an ordinary journey you might part ways with your companions. You might choose the path of least resistance but if you know it's a mission that God has appointed you for and sent you on, it'll give you the strength to endure and that's a lesson that we can each take for ourselves. You know, this bread that is being given to David by Ahimelech reminds me of the prayer that Jesus instructs us to pray. Remember that prayer? We call it the Lord's Prayer. How does that begin? Give us this day our daily bread. And that's a prayer that reminds us where our strength comes from, where our sustenance comes from, where's the energy that we need for the mission that he has called us on. We don't just go over to King Super and pick a loaf off the shelf It's no ordinary journey. We come to the one who provides and we say, God, you give us today the daily bread that we need. Our journey is not a mundane, profane, common, ordinary journey that ordinary bread will do for. It's a holy mission that God has called you to if you are a son or a daughter of the king. If you're following King Jesus, every moment, every breath, Every decision, every action, every day is a part of a holy mission intended to bring him glory. And he's working through your life, through your circumstances to bring glory to himself. That prayer that Jesus commands us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, that's a daily entrusting ourselves to him, a daily coming to that, to that priest at the temple and saying, I need some holy bread for this task that God has called me to. It's his mission that he carries out through us. It's his heart that pumps the blood through our veins that gives us the strength we need. It's his plan working through our words and our thoughts. Are we taking that daily grain sacrifice to worship him and then to receive the strength that we need? If you want God to show you the way you should go, you need that daily bread from him. And you're going to find it in his word. You're going to find it in fellowship with him and time spent with him and say, God, give me the daily bread I need today. Give me the strength I need. Guide me. Guide my steps, Lord. Help me not to just walk the path that I've chosen, but the path that you direct me on. So David begins the journey in that way. And now we get a little preview of the the opposition that's to come in verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. Note that phrase. This servant of Saul detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. That's it. That's all we hear about Doeg at this point in the story. He'll come back in in chapter 22. I think it's it's significant to see how God is even at work through this opposition that's to come. Doeg was not just coincidentally there. Doeg was not there on his own agenda. It says that Doeg was detained before the Lord. There's somehow that God is sovereignly working even through a very negative circumstance that's about to come. So just table that thought till the story unfolds. So David notes the presence of Doeg. We'll find out later. And then he says to Ahimelech, Now that he's received the bread, the holy bread. Have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? Do you remember how many swords there were in Israel at this point in their history from earlier in 1 Samuel? There's two swords in the entire country. Saul has one. Jonathan, his son, has the other. That's it. In fact, the, the, the Israelites can't even get their tools sharpened because the Philistines have... A monopoly on the blacksmiths and so their their sickles and their hoes and whatever they need for gardening they they can't even get those sharpened because the Philistines see that as a risk but now there's a third sword because a shepherd boy named David took down one of the Philistine Giants and then took his sword off and lopped his head off with it so there's there's now a third sword and David asked this question don't you have a spear or a sword anywhere for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. That's more holy references there in the temple. Behind that priestly garment, there's, a, there's a, an instrument of power available. If you, will take, if, if you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there's none like that. Give it to me. And so he receives not just the holy bread, but also the sword of Goliath. He's got God's holy mission, God's provision for that journey, the strength he's going to need, and, and the tool that he's going to need to carry out the task that God is calling him to as he goes into battle. So these are the tools that David has available to him. He's got the sword of a dead Philistine giant. He's got a ragtag bunch of 400 distressed, broke, bitter malcontents that he's commanding now. These are the tools that God is going to use to turn the world upside down. You know, and in human reasoning, human strength, human wisdom, you'd go, this is a horrible plan. Kind of like Jonathan and his armor bearer back in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. We, we, we kind of skipped over that chapter, but there, there's a story where the Philistines are encamped against Israel. They're all afraid to go into battle. And Jonathan comes up with this brilliant plan that he pitches to his armor bearer. Hey, Jonathan, check this out. Armor bearer, come here. Up on that ridge up there, you see all those Philistines? There's a big outpost up there. Let's you and I go over there. And we'll go to the base of the ridge. And then we'll call up to the Philistines, hey, here we are! And if they say, come on up here, then we'll know that that's God's sign that we're supposed to go up and beat them. And if they say, well, stay down there we'll come get you, then we'll run back because then we'll know that God is not giving us victory. And the armor bearer not being a real bright dude, he's like, that is a great plan. I am with you, heart and soul. And so they do that. They go over to the base of the hill. Here we are. We're not hiding. Come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. Hey, armor bearer, this is the sign. This is it. God's going to deliver them into our hand. And they climb up, having that military disadvantage from the low point going up to the high point. And they get up there and they stand back to back and they kill, I think it's 100 Philistines. And that that starts a a groundswell of of excitement there in the ranks of Israel. God, the one who fights our battles, God, the one who gives us the strength we need, even when the plan is horrible and awful, that's how God at times will work to, to prove that he's the one that goes out before us in battle. And really, when I look at the story of David with this group of 400 nobodies whose circumstances are really bad, One sword between them all. And yet those are the tools that are needed for the mission that God has called them to because when God calls someone, he also equips them for that mission that he sent them on. That applies to each one of us. There may be a big faith-requiring mission that God is calling you to right now that you're afraid to even tell anybody else because the rest of us will think, you're crazy, your plan is horrible. And yet God's been speaking to you and he's been calling you to this step of obedience. And you're, you're, you're reluctant to even say, you know, should I, should I even speak this? Well, that's how our God works. Trust in him to be the one that gives you the tools that you need, that shows you the way you should go because then all the glory goes to him. Not our efforts, not our strength, but God at work through those opportunities that he places before us. And now as the story continues, really David moves into the background and Saul comes to the foreground as the story is concluded here in chapter 22, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait. As at this day, confrontation between Saul, who's grasping for his own power and his own ability to retain that throne. And now he's accusing others of not helping him achieve that self-centered mission and purpose. But one man speaks up from the crowd. Doeg the Idiomite answered and stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Remember that ominous character we met in chapter 21 standing there in the shadows, hearing the conversation, seeing that transaction of holy bread going to endorse and support the mission that God had called King David to. Seeing the sword of the giant, Goliath, being removed from that holy place and given to David. And now he's bringing that information to Saul. You know, at this point, it's hard to really discern the heart of Doeg. Right? I mean, he saw something with his own eyes, heard something. He's reporting to his superior officer, as, as it were. You know, the king, the king of Israel, he's one of Saul's herdsmen. So really, we're not really getting a real clear view. Is there anything wrong or distorted with Doeg's actions, his perspectives? He's telling true words, right? This is what happened in chapter 21. It's not until a little bit later that we get a glimpse of what's going on in Doeg's heart. And so Saul acts on this information. Verse 11, the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, And all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him? so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I have inquired of the Lord of God for him? No. No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. You remember the the interaction with David and Ahimelech in chapter 21. Ahimelech didn't get the full story from David, did he? Remember, David was somewhat evasive in his response. You know, Ahimelech was nervous and worried, why are you here alone? And, And David essentially lied to him said it's a secret mission endorsed by King Saul and and Ahimelech was willing and, and ready to bless him to endorse his journey by giving him this holy bread and the sword of Goliath. He knew David's reputation and now he's laying this out truthfully to King Saul. This is what I did. This is what I knew. This is what I was told. I've inquired of the Lord for him before and I'll do it again. Frankly, this is a good man. This is a man anointed by God for God's kingdom mission, and you've seen his faithfulness. He's been used by God to defeat Goliath. He's trusted in your house. He's your son-in-law. You've given your own daughter to him in marriage. He's boldly speaking words of truth to this king, even at great personal risk. And I think Ahimelech can see the writing on the wall. When the king summons you and everyone from your household to stand before him, it's probably not a good sign. And he speaks truth and he doesn't make any excuses in that moment. And now Saul replies in verse 16, the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. That's, that's the assembly Here today, it's the priests of the Lord standing before Saul. Because their hand also is with David and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand out to strike the priests of the Lord. So they're they're disobeying a direct command of the king. Shows you where their heart is. And once again, you're seeing that courage and that boldness. To not stand in opposition to the purposes of God, to not stand opposed to the mission that God has called David to, when the king is instructing them to do something bizarre, kill the priests of the Lord. No, we can't do that, Saul. So then, Saul said, to, or the king, Saul said to Doeg, "You turn and strike the priests." And Doeg the Edomite, or the Edomite, turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Note this phrase. You may recognize this from earlier in 1 Samuel. He put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. That phrase was used, a very similar phrase at the end of chapter 15 when God had instructed or at the beginning of chapter 15 when God had instructed Saul to bring judgment to the people of Amalek that was the day that Saul said okay yeah we'll, we'll devote to destruction all the stuff that's worthless the stuff we don't want the good stuff the plunder the loot we're going to keep for ourselves and yet now Saul is destroying who he himself has called the priests of the Lord not the false prophets Not the enemies of God, but he is aware and and alert with eyes wide open, saying, these are the priests of the Lord. I'm going to annihilate them. I am going to stand in opposition to them. I will destroy them. Any sympathy you may have had for Saul in the previous episodes of God rejecting him as king are now wiped away, right? Like, you know, maybe you had a little bit of empathy for Saul on the day that he offered that sacrifice when, when Samuel said, wait seven days, I will come and offer the sacrifice, and then tell you what God wants you to do next. Well, technically, Saul waited until the seventh day, watching his wristwatch, and he didn't make it. I'm going to offer the sacrifice myself. But God was looking into his heart, and he saw that as an indicator of what kind of a man Saul was, where his Allegiances and loyalties lie in his own selfish desires and needs, not committed to God's glory or to his purposes, but to his own status as the king. Or later, when in that battle with Amalek, maybe you had some sympathy for Saul there in chapter 15. Well, technically, you know, he claimed that he was just bringing the good stuff back to Jerusalem to then offer as it a sacrifice to God. But God knew exactly what his intentions and thoughts were, that that was just an excuse to cover up his disobedience. And now we're really seeing the real Saul on full display. Opposed to God, opposed to his kingdom purposes. We're getting a good glimpse of Doeg's heart as well. Not just one who, who offers clinical true statements in a detached, objective way but one who is willing to take the sword and strike down the priests of the Lord to carry out this evil command of an evil king whose heart is hardened toward God. He's willing and eager to bring judgment against his own enemies in complete devastation. Saul is, even though he's unwilling to carry out God's divine judgment against the enemies of God. And so it's a horrible story. Right? But there's a remnant hope that remains here at the end of chapter 22. There's that little seed that will become a stump from which future hope will rise. And here's what it says in verse 20. One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. There's that little hope that remains there, not not just with David and his ragtag bunch of distressed, broke, bitter dudes going with him on this mission that God has sent them on. But now also this this remnant of the sons of Eli, the descendants of Eli, the priests of the Lord, carrying on. the, the, The number of voices has greatly diminished now. But there's still that faithful remnant pushing on and saying no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how big the foe, no matter how big the adversary, no matter how unbelievably painful the path has been to this point, there is still a God on the throne who provides the daily sustenance that his people need, who equips them with the power they need to carry out the calling that he has given to them, who is with them on the journey, who will guide and direct their steps. He's still alive, even in the dark places of life. I think it it comes down to having the right perspective on the circumstances we face. Um, Aiden and I got a chance to tag along with Mac and his son on an elk hunt in September. And we're learning about all this western-style hunting. You know, we're used to hunting whitetail deer in the big woods of northern Wisconsin and Minnesota where, you know, you don't need a sniper rifle because you're not going to get a shot over about 75 yards through the thick uh, north, north woods. So here, you know, we need, we need this extra tool that you've got to carry in your pack called binoculars. And part of the hunt is going out to a spot where you've got a good vantage point of a bunch of ridges and, and, you know, getting that glass out, starting to glass these ridges and find out where are the elk. You know, if if I was doing my Wisconsin-style hunting, we'd just go sit on a ridge somewhere and wait for them to come by. We'd still be there a month later. But those having quality optics is how you know where to go, Right? And, and when you're getting to use these binoculars, you find out that you've got to have the, you know, the parts popped out at the right place and, and kind of dial the main one in to focus one side and then twist the other side. And, and all of a sudden, you can see through those binoculars something that, without them, you'd only be able to see your immediate surroundings. That's a little bit how it is when you get a glimpse of God's kingdom. Those present circumstances, they're not just things happening in your daily life Right here in front of you, the mundane, the ordinary journey, but you start to get a glimpse of God's kingdom purposes way out there in the eternal future. And that's when a little phrase like Doeg detained before the Lord in chapter 21 starts to make sense. In an ordinary journey mindset, you'd say, wait a minute, whoa, God is somehow behind. Doeg being in the room overhearing the conversation between David and him, like this Doeg who is about to slaughter 85 priests of the Lord, God is somehow involved in that? How can he be a good God if that's the case? And yet, that sort of judgment on God and his purposes is a very short sighted view of the circumstances we face. It's natural but we're called to have a supernatural perspective, to see the king and his glory, to see how God is at work, even in those moments of remnant hope when the, when the present circumstances are really hard and really tough. Paul says it this way in his letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4. Think about the challenge you're facing today. Here's what Paul says. Our light and momentary afflictions Is that how you would describe the pain that you're going through right now? Would you call it light and momentary? When when you're glassing the ridge of God's purposes, that's how you begin to look at those present circumstances. Our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So God's calling us to lift up our eyes to see what he is doing in our world, to put our trust in him, the one who sustains us, the one who empowers us and equips us, the one who directs us where we should go, even if it's times in a cave, even if it's time in the woods in hiding with some difficult people and some difficult circumstances. God's saying, press on, persevere, persevere. There's victory coming. Sometimes we experience it in this life. Sometimes it's not until Jesus comes again where he calls us to be with him. And yet when you've got that eternal perspective, it helps us to endure the day-to-day struggles that we face. Maybe today you're in that moment where you feel kind of like David. There's a lot of enemies. There's a lot of opposition. There's plenty of difficulty, including difficult people. And today you need that reminder that there is a God who's on the throne. He's aware of what you're going through. He's the one who sustains and provides. If that's you, I'd like to pray for you today. And so why don't we stand together and maybe if that's you, you could just raise a hand just as kind of that, that step of faith of saying, yeah, I need, I need a reminder that God is with me in the trials that I'm facing, okay? Let's go to him. Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God. We thank you that you commission your servants, like the people in this room, to follow after you. That you work through us. Lord, your choosing of us does not mean that we're perfect, that we're somehow more valuable than anyone else, and yet we are valuable to you, and you've chosen us as your sons and daughters, those that are following after you. God, we pray that we would step forward with confidence into the calling that you've given to each one of us. Lord, that, that despite difficult people or diff- difficult circumstances we encounter along the way, our hope will be firmly rooted in you. Lord, when those trials come, when the adversity comes, we pray that you would cause that remnant hope to remain in our lives, that you give a glimmer of hope even when the circumstances are dark and painful, that you'd help us to have our eyes fixed upon you and your kingdom, not on our own little kingdoms and our own purposes. God, we thank you that you provide the sustenance that we need. You provide that daily bread. Thank you that our mission is a holy journey, not just an ordinary trip. Thank you that you equip us with the weapons that we need, that you give us the Holy Spirit to empower us to be your witnesses. Thank you that you've paid the price for our sins, Lord Jesus. And we give you thanks and praise today as we prepare our hearts for communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are going to be uh, celebrating